Well, this has been a great, great study in Luke's gospel, so take your Bibles if you would and let's return to Luke 6, Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> at Grace Emmanuel Bible Church we love to hear pages turning and, or at least uh, the uh, on button of your iPad going. <laughs> we live in a different age, don't we? Don't be answering your emails while we're preaching. Luke chapter 6. If you ever wanted to clearly see the difference, you know, boiled down between someone who's a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and someone who is merely a phony who just professes it, you can, you can cut straight to the chase in one basic area of human conduct, and it is this. When suffering harm at the hands of those who might hate you, do you, as a Christian, live according to a heart of personal vengeance or a heart of mercy? When suffering harm at the hands of those who hate you, does, the, does your life, your response, reflect a heart of personal vengeance or a heart of mercy? Do you think you're personally entitled to retaliate to injustices or slights or even serious mistreatments that are committed against you, to personally return evil for evil, to personally counter slander with slander. In a word, do you think you have a right to hate those who hate you? As Jesus is preaching in this sermon, he continues to say things that dismantle the conventional wisdom of the day. And he is confronting, really, the most natural disposition of the human heart. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27 and reading through verse 38. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Stop right there. In the middle of Jesus' sermon, he hits yet another amazing, confronting principle that would come against the conventional ideas of the day. As he expands beyond the radical principle he's already finished expounding, he, he just literally stuns this crowd by going after one of their most precious assumptions. Not unlike um, every human culture, but particularly our own culture today, that first century crowd lived by a code of conduct 
that every fallen human being immediately resonates with. This is quite comfortable for us to understand what they would have thought. It's the view that if someone harms me, it is my inalienable right, just to use our country's language. It is my inalienable right to exact some personal justice. To go after them personally. To become the lead investigator. To become the, the jury. To become the prosecuting attorney. To become the one who's the sole vote of a guilty verdict. To act as sentencing judge and even prison warden. Just so they learn never to harm you again. In fact, just so you understand the, how provocative and agitating Jesus' teaching on this issue would have been in that day, not only, not only would such teaching confront the average citizen, but the religious leaders of Israel, who were also in the crowd, they were well known for, for their own severe treatment and contempt for anyone who was not an Israelite, let alone someone who harmed them or mistreated them. They had a self-justifying and self-preserving and, and a prideful tendency to condescend to anyone who was not one of their own. They uh, went against God's own very law regarding the treatment of enemies. And they did it all the time and they justified it in some sort of twisted application of God's just hatred and punishment of wicked nations. You say, what do you mean? Well, God had always said that ultimate justice belonged to him, right? 32, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, vengeance is mine, God said, and retribution. Retribution belongs to the Lord, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and in due time, Moses would write, in due time, as he quotes the Lord, the enemy's foot will slip. Anybody who's against God, it is God who will exact justice, it is God who will make the enemy's foot slip the day of their calamity is near, the text says, and the impending things are hastening upon them. And with that statement, God upholds his own divine right, his own divine prerogative to judge. And he removed from human beings their personal right to rise up against someone in a heart of vengeance, retaliation. God has the divine right to judge. In fact, he can do it any way he chooses. He uses governments to judge other nations. He uses laws of nations to judge criminals and put people uh, down who pridefully rise, or raise themselves up. He uses earthly powers, maybe even empirical powers, empires and entire governments and kings and nations. He uses them as his instruments to punish evil. And when we read in the Old Testament of psalms, songs in Israel that expressed what we, we often call imprecations, imprecatory psalms, calling down a curse on people, calling down a curse on nations, calling down God's wrath on people. When we see the songwriters of Israel pronouncing hatred for evil cultures and praying down destruction upon them, we are reading through the human author, God's holy heart of righteous judgment. Now, sometimes um, we skip over those parts. You know, in fact, 
At a funeral service, we will often read Psalm 139, right? I mean, Psalm 139, what a great psalm about the omniscience and omnipresence of Almighty God. What a wonderful psalm. And we read the wonderful parts. Verse 3, you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Oh, that's just lovely. And the song in Israel went out with language like verse 14, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How many times have we quoted that? To encourage the human heart. We read the happy parts. Search me, O God, and see if there's any evil way in me and create in me the everlasting way. Help me to walk in the everlasting way. These are wonderful things to read, but we skip over that section, verse 19 through 22. We skip over that because it says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them, verse 22, with the utmost hatred they have become my enemies. Wow. (laughs) Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was just about to preach to love your enemies. It's true. These are the hard sayings that critics of the Bible want to say are contradictions. But the psalmist in the Old Testament and God's law that pronounces judgment on entire nations, his divine prerogative to be wrathful, and God's people sometimes nationally expressing that as a people set apart for him. These are not expressions of personal vengeance or retaliation. That was forbidden. These are clearly judicial pronouncements. Judicial pronouncements, listen, that are rooted in God's sovereign right to bring his righteous judgment upon sin and upon the wicked cultures that foster it and and promote it. And he often did that. Israel was not a perfect nation. But at times, God ordered Israel to completely wipe out an entire wicked nation. People, animals, crops, and any vestige of their evil culture. He told Israel to do that. Why? Because God was judiciously bringing down justice upon them for their sin. God often used Israel as an arm for his justice and his wrath upon cultures because those cultures continually destroyed themselves and destroyed people and destroyed the righteous standards of God and destroyed the testimony of holiness and destroyed all that is good. Rampant wickedness, defying God's holiness, defying his mercy and his love and his compassion and his patience. And so what did God do? He took Israel and he said, look, I want you to destroy them. The hatred, quote-unquote, that is sometimes found in the Psalter in those imprecations is a pure and righteous indignation expressed against anyone and anything that showed hatred for God and his glory. You weren't to do it individually. In fact, as we'll see in Jesus' sermon on that day on the hillside, while God is indeed holy and while his wrath will come, he is also perfect mercy, he is perfect love, he is perfect willingness to forgive guilt, He is compassionate for anyone who calls upon him for his grace. Now, meanwhile, back at the Pharisees in the first century, they had taken God's divine right to judge and they'd made it their personal privilege. They made it their personal privilege as their way of dealing with anyone who was a non-Jew or anyone who might hurt or cheat them. And so they taught that the Jews should love their neighbor, but they narrowly defined neighbor as Jews. You love your own people, and then they taught to hate their enemies. In fact, Matthew's recording of the sermon, if you're 
jotting down notes and writing down cross-references, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Matthew records that Jesus actually said these words. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So clearly, love your neighbor is the part from the Old Testament law that the Pharisees were glad to speak about, as long as they define neighbor as just our own ethnic people. But then they added the phrase, hate your enemies, which is found nowhere in the Old Testament. They took the imprecations of the Psalms, they took God's wrath, and made it personal. That's what they did. And they were teaching, the time Jesus shows up, they were teaching that all Gentile nations were worthy of such curses. And they were worthy of contempt. And so, though God's law never taught hatred for enemies... In fact, it taught the very opposite. You can just read it in the Decalogue, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you'll surely return it to him. You say, well, that sounds like care for animals. No, listen. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. What does that mean? Look, you have somebody that hates you. God said in the Old Testament economy, even among my people, even if that guy's your enemy... You're to help him because out of your heart is to flow compassion. How is that guy in a nation that isn't chosen by God as an instrument of grace ever going to see grace? How's he ever going to be exposed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who forgives sin? That's the point. God reaches out to sinners so his people must reach out to enemies just like God does. The tendency, even back then, and you can see the parallels in your own heart today, the tendency, even back then, was for God's chosen people, Israel, to isolate themselves in self-preservation because they wanted to avoid any mistreatment from the pagan cultures around them, and we see that today in our culture. You know, you, you sort of develop this, you're tempted to develop this contempt. You see the evil and you hate it, You see the wickedness and the declension of society and you hate it, but there's a tendency to want to circle the wagons and show contempt, to throw rocks at it. Well, how's anybody ever going to hear the gospel? What are you going to do, get on a loudspeaker? What happens when they pull the wires out and they can't hear you anymore? What happens if the battle against you is so loud? What happens if the hatred in their heart is so loud? They will drown out your message of the gospel. You've got to demonstrate that you're moving toward them. You're reaching toward them. That was the whole point. And Israel had a tendency to be puffed up with pride over their privileged place among the nations. Listen, when you become a Christian, do not risk believing or imagining that you got into the gospel by any goodness in you or any power in you to accomplish it. You're saved by what? Grace. Grace. And so if you're saved by grace, you're saved by grace and you can't, you're you're sustained by grace, you can't sustain it on your own, you can't hold on to it, you can't keep it, you're saved and brought all the way to glory by grace. If that's the case, you can't imagine that you're better or more savable than someone else. Moreover, you can't pervert God's divine justice of sinners by turning that into a prerogative, a personal right to judge others. So God gave them law which reflected his own heart of mercy and grace and it it literally forced Israel to reach out in mercy and love to those who desperately need a relationship with 
the one true and living God. So by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of Israel were blatant violators of the, the Old Testament law, and they twisted the Old Testament principles into something that was giving them the freedom to hold people in contempt. In fact, they took the Old Testament principle from Leviticus 24, which was, you've heard it as the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for a life. In the Latin, it is lex talionis. It is the Old Testament principle of, of equal treatment. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And that law given by God in Leviticus 24 was intended to prevent personal retaliation, not foster it. The Pharisees took it and turned it around. What was the intention of that law? That law was intended to make sure punishment fit the crime. Why? Because the human heart always wants to go further, doesn't it? I mean, you do that with your kids sometimes. Your teenager offends you or your little pre-adolescent violates you or even your toddler just defies your authority and, man, you want to drive that point home personally. You don't want to just bring God's instruction and the chastening of, out of love that the Bible prescribes. You want to go further. You want to heap hours and hours of instructive guilt on them. No parents here have done that, but I know you've read about it. <laughs> we sure didn't do it. This is the tendency of the human heart. We don't want the punishment to fit the crime. Why? Because we have vengeance in there. We have hatred in there. And the Jewish leaders taught that that law was a justification for personal vengeance. Yet the law was set as a principle of fair and proper restitution for wrongs suffered. It was to benefit society, grow society, make it more peaceful. It prevented the personal prerogative of retaliation and it promoted civil and community standards for carrying out justice and demanding restitution. So what does Jesus do? Look, he grabs a hold of the Pharisees' most sacred cow in their own personal contempt for others. And he smashes it from all kinds of angles. So this sermon has started out as a major polarizing line in the sand. Jesus has already given the principle of moral conviction. You think a life of fulfillment is to go after the gusto here? You're wrong. Actually, suffering here, being hungry here, uh, those are the real blessed lives. Whether you have it or not, it's to be used for God's glory. If you trust in it, you're not blessed. You'll never be fulfilled trusting in it here. You only have comfort here. You get no comfort in eternity. But if your moral conviction is the reverse, you just use it here for God's glory. You thank the Lord for the use of it, but you never trust in it. You trust only in what's to come. Then you're fulfilled. Even if you have tears here and sorrow here and people don't like you here. Now listen, let me just say something, beloved. You must, if you're a Christian, Believe that. You may not believe it perfectly. You may not live by it perfectly. But you must, as a Christian, actually entrust yourself to that principle. I know it's tempting in a very, very affluent society with great privilege to want to hold on to those privileges as the world begins to take them from us. But you must accept that this is not where our citizenship lies. It isn't. You must rejoice in the humiliation, James 1, 9 to 11. When you get humiliated and everything gets taken and no more tax breaks and all of you are hemmed in and no one can come to church without scowls from your neighbors and they don't even like you having a church in the community and they take all that from us, 
James says, rejoice in your humiliation because like flowering grass that's here today, gone tomorrow, all this stuff is nothing. You gotta believe that. True Christians, true followers of Christ, true disciples believe that. And right on the heels of that, Jesus then goes from the true disciples' moral conviction to this second polarizing principle, the true disciples' merciful deeds. The true disciples' merciful deeds. And here he just packs a wallop. He sets forth in these verses, 27 to 38, he sets forth the principle that human justice and personal revenge are the exact opposite of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. The exact opposite. Now, Matthew does something interesting, and Luke doesn't record it. In Matthew's gospel, though, we won't won't take time, we don't have time to go there. In Matthew's gospel, he records that just before this instruction, Jesus sort of introduces this principle by first teaching that behavior modification is not how you deal with sin. You can't just dress up the outside. And so Jesus addressed in this sermon, just before the principle that Luke records here, he addresses some areas that the Old Testament law spoke about and and the Pharisees had turned into some external thing. They didn't deal with the heart. And so in Matthew 5, 21 to 48... Jesus deals with these issues. First, he deals with murder. And he says, look, you have to realize that while you may have never taken someone's life here on the earth, if you have been angry at someone in personal vengeance, it is murder of the heart. That's what it is. It is a murderous attitude in the heart. You can read it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. It is the principle from Exodus 20, verse 13. If you have vengeful anger in your heart, it is a heart that is murderous. You got to deal with that. Then he talked about adultery. And in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, he talks about the fact that you may not have been unfaithful to your marriage on the practical outside, but if you have craved someone who is not your spouse on the inside, then the, the fabric of adultery is woven in your heart. It's there. Impure desires. Oh, the Pharisees would have chafed at this. They thought, I, you know, I don't murder. Yeah, but in your heart, you run around holding people in hatred and contempt. That's murderous attitudes. Oh, well, I don't, I don't commit adultery unless it's, you know, accepted by law. Yeah, but in your heart, you're lusting all over the place and coveting everyone else outside your marriage. In here, you're already an adulterer. Oh, they wouldn't have liked that. Then he dealt with divorce. Ah, you're putting your spouse away for any little offense. Jesus says, listen, you're not dealing with the law from the heart. You're destroying marriage. You're destroying marriage. Yeah, someone who doesn't repent and leaves the marriage, you can't fulfill your marriage vow, you can't get them to repent. They're on their own. There may be an innocent party. You're you're not in that sense guilty of anything. But oh, man. If you just put your spouse away and destroy marriage, you have in your heart a hatred and contempt 
for this great institution. Your heart is full of bitterness and personal vengeance and self-preservation. Even making promises on the outside. I'm, I make spiritual promises. I'm this bold person who just claims all this wonderful spiritual stuff. And in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Jesus says, oh, do you make those bold vows of spiritual fidelity? But in your heart, you have no intention of being faithful to them? Again, he just cuts right to the heart. You're not faithful in here. And then that's when Jesus it is recorded in Matthew's gospel, deals with retaliation and love of enemies, the same thing Luke is going to deal with here. So Jesus has introduced this section. Luke doesn't record all that. But essentially, Luke comes out swinging in his recording of Jesus' sermon because he cuts right to the chase. Oh yeah, the Pharisees had said, love your enemies, but uh, or love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. Luke just cuts right to the chase here. I say to you who hear... I say to you who hear, what is that? That is anyone with spiritual ears, anyone who's got a soft heart, anyone who's willing to listen to what God says rather than puff themselves up. That's the idea here. Ears of faith, really. And the the adversative here is the strongest. But I say to you. So, you, you, you might be mistreated in this life. He had said that. You might be hated in this life. He'd said that back in verse 21. Uh, Verse 22, rather, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you. Scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And then verse 27, I say to you with ears of faith, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then some illustrations. So let's just lay these principles out. The first principle is love reaches out in mercy. Real disciples of Christ, filled with the love of Christ in their heart, manifest that love in merciful deeds. The first of which is that love reaches out in mercy or pardon or forgiveness. Reaching out to sworn enemies with personal love, first of all, for their soul. If someone says they're your enemy... Because of the sake of Christ, they don't like your lifestyle, they don't like your gospel, they they don't like the fact that they feel judged around you, they don't like the fact that you live by a different standard they do, or they just don't love the truth, they're an unbeliever and, and they think you're nuts, they think you're whacked. Whatever the case may be, and whatever response it may bring, the first thing love does is it reaches out in mercy in this specific way a concern for their soul. Listen, sometimes I imagine that when my heart is vengeful, God could, in that moment, take my final breath. Couldn't he? Now think about that. If the enemy against whom you are vengeful were also to lose their final breath. And you both arrive before the throne in that moment. You have an enemy of the gospel and you have someone saved, you. But you, when the Lord took your final breath, you go to heaven, he goes to hell. What in the world did your vengeance accomplish? Were you concerned for their soul? No. Were you concerned that they might 
have their final breath in that moment and meet the creator of the universe and their eternity? No. When you respond to an enemy without a concern for their soul, God is offended at that. He's offended. Love for enemies comes from a concern for the soul. A love for their eternal well-being. Oh, I know you want to see your family members in heaven. Sure, sure. And you might want to see the good guy. Right, Romans 5? Someone might die for a good man. You know. I know that your heart warms up to a longtime friend whom you've witnessed to for years and years and years, and they still haven't come, but, you know, they're not defiant or harming you. You, you, you reach out to them in love. You, you pray in your prayer group for their soul, their eternal well-being. Man, Jesus, Jesus says, real love, real disciples of Christ, I mean, here you are all on the hillside, you all professed to love me and to follow me and to be my disciple. Here's what a disciple of Christ does. He reaches out in mercy even to enemies. Yeah. So when you love your enemies, you're reaching out out of personal concern for their soul, personal concern for their well-being. And listen, pity for their lost condition. What drives pity for their lost condition? Your rescue from your lost condition. You should never get used to what you were saved from. I could say it this way, you should never get used to whom you were saved from. You were saved from a God of wrath who would certainly judge. And so that should drive a pity for your enemy. Even murderous enemies a pity for them, a contempt for anything that offends God's throne, living alongside the tension of pity for their lost condition. Wow, that's, there's no way that's in the natural man. There's no way that, that those two things can coexist in a human heart naturally. But with God's help and grace, notice how they, how they come out. You love your enemies and you do good to those who hate you. Literally, you practice good toward those who hold you in contempt. You practice it. The, the common opposite word for good here is in the Greek is kalas or, or harm, that which is intended to harm. Sometimes you have other words like paneros, which could be used for the word worthless and sometimes used as opposite of good. You have a few other words that, that take on different meanings, but but most often, the intent to do harm in these kinds of contexts is the word used opposite that which is good. So now you know what the word good here is. It means with an intent to bless, with an intent not to do harm, but to do good. Look at Romans 12, verse 21. You remember what I read earlier, so clear. It just needs so little explanation, although it needs lots of application. Do not be overcome by evil, but, again, that, that wonderful 
contrast, overcome evil with good. With good, there it is. The practice of what will bring good to somebody's life. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So here you have the idea of um, bringing them uh, or, or praying down upon them good things. Praying down upon them good things. In contexts where mistreatment is or persecution is the case, it means to say, seek God's favor upon someone. They're not seeking your favor, but you're seeking God's favor upon them. That's the idea. They're coming against you and pursuing everything to, to make harm come to your life. And in return, you are overcoming their evil intent with that which is for their good Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Matthew 5.11. Blessed. But I say to you, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Same idea. You're running hard after something that's good. Instead of doing what comes naturally, which is bitterness and unforgiveness and wishing harm on them, you're to desire grace and compassion. You know, I do this little exercise in my heart sometimes when I'm really, really tempted to rise up in a spirit of contempt or bitterness or vengeance, I just, it doesn't matter who it is, even if it's someone I don't know and they would just slander my name or criticize or persecute, I immediately pray for them by name and ask God to be merciful. And sometimes, you know, that's a hard thing because we want to see them pay for their misguided behavior, mistreatment. We want to see them pay for their the harm and hurt and emotional trauma that comes to our life. You want to see them pay for that. But listen, no amount of human justice and human payment in this life could ever make up for the dire condition that they will be in if they arrive in God's presence unforgiven. No amount, even if you could exact justice upon them from the moment they harmed you till the moment you both die and it was meted out at your discretion and without compassion and fully the, as much wrath as you could muster here on earth, it will be nothing compared to an eternity separated from God and under his wrath when they come to face him. So I, I will often pray for them by name, Lord, be merciful to them. Those are my best moments. I don't have a lot of best moments. Man, Stephen, when he was being stoned, lay not this sin to their charge. Jesus on the cross, the Savior of the world, slandered and his innocent heart offended as he tasted guilt he never deserved and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What do you mean? They don't know that they're doing evil? Of course they knew they were doing evil. They don't know that they are, you know, wicked and sinful and love it. So no, they love those things. They know it and give hearty approval to those that are breaking every, every framework of morality in the human heart. They know all that. What did Jesus mean? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the implications. They don't know what's coming. They don't know that when they face you, they will face things that are unimaginable. And we, in our pettiness, think that a little human justice 
will satisfy. Jesus says, don't you name the name of Christ and imagine that you can continue to live like that comfortably with hatred in your heart. In fact, the Apostle John says in 1 John, if you hate your brother, you're not a Christian. He doesn't mean if you have moments of bitterness like we do. He means if you have a pattern of comfortable, customary way of life where you just justify, 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 hating other people, bitter at other people, you better think about your profession of faith. You better think about that, beloved, because who is to say, if God has said there's no love of God dwelling in you, then who's to say? What are you going to do? Bring a defense before him? Yeah, but I, I prayed a prayer. I, I, you know, signed the card. I got baptized in this church. My parents were this. That, that affords you nothing in the judgment if you cultivate it as a lifestyle, hatred for people. And if you have been, you can thank the Lord that he's gracious enough to put you in a room like this during a sermon like this. That's a grace in your life. Maybe you're a Christian and he's just now going to ring you out over this issue. Isn't that nice? Isn't that kind of him? Notice, bless those who curse you. Eulageo, you know, we give a eulogy at a funeral. To seek God's favor upon them. Jesus, when he lifted up his hands with his disciples in Luke 24, he pronounced a blessing upon them. You know what he was saying? Lord, be merciful, favorable, pardon, pardoning. Bring good spiritual things upon them. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12, Paul says, and we toil, working with our own hands. And when somebody reviles us about that, you know, questions our motives, we bless them back. Same word, we bless them. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 3, 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. In other words, counter for counter, insult resulting in a blessing. Asking God's favor in response to slander. You want to shock your enemies? Help them. Help them with their needs, no matter how much they've slandered you, no matter how much contempt they've shown for you. And Jesus really cuts to it, verse 28. Pray for those who mistreat you. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to turn to those psalms those imprecations, I'm going to call down some things. Mm. Those were national. Those were God using Israel as an instrument to speak national, judicious judgments upon evil nations and cultures. If you individualize that stuff, and you even dare to go into the presence of God under the pretense of dependence and humility under his sovereignty and then pretend to tell God what he must do to satisfy your sense of human justice? Isn't this what we do? Isn't this at times what we do against friends, people in the church, our spouse, our parents, our children, our business partners, the culture, government. Isn't this what we do sometimes? We name the name of Christ and James says, with the same mouth we bless and then curse those who are made in the image of God. We bless God who makes man in his image and we curse the one who's made in his image. And James says, these things ought not to be. They ought not to be. Love not only 
responds in mercy and care for one's soul. Love prays. Love reaches out in prayer for the desperate condition and spiritual need of those who personally mistreat you. If you want to soften your heart and learn how to pardon and forgive like Jesus pardoned and forgave, take the name of that enemy in to the presence of God in prayer and pray that he would rescue them before they have to face the guiltiness of those sins against you. Count it a privilege. Whoa, pastor, you're going way too far now. Count it a privilege to have been mistreated and be the one instrument God wants to use to come before his throne to pray for them. Who's going to pray for the cruel enemy that that did you harm? Who's going to pray for that person? Who? Who's going to pray for their soul? Nobody's going to pray for their soul because if they treated you like that, they're treating everyone around them like that. They hate everyone around them like that. No one's going to take them before the Lord on behalf of grace. And so you pray for them Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Romans 13, 10. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's that's just the negative side of this whole entire command to pray for those who mistreat us. Don't harm your neighbor. We have a debt. That debt is to love them. So we sacrifice for their needs regardless of how they treat us. We die to self for the preservation of others rather than the preservation of self. We are humble toward others that they might be exalted. We honor God in all things so they see the character of God. They might be reconciled in Him. You say, well, there must be a few exceptions here. I mean, come on. Are you saying I absolutely have no individual and personal right to bring justice to an offense committed against me? Remember Paul's command. Here's, here's how simple it gets, Romans twelve nineteen. Sometimes you can take revenge. It is not, Doc's going to kill me. It's not in the Greek. Never. Never. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but give the place, the rightful place to the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. It's a poor translation. Give rightful place to the wrath of God, the place that it belongs. Why? It's based on what God said. Vengeance is mine exclusively mine, all mine, and I will repay. So in other words, all questions of justice will be answered. Somebody horribly did you wrong, all of that will be answered at a divine bar of justice. You do not want to be in the courtroom when that happens. You do not want to have a list of injustices in the courtroom when that happens. All that in your life was paid for by Christ. Your sense of justice is too far low. Your sense of justice is all about the flesh. Your sense of justice is all about your own human view of things I will repay the Lord said you say what about when I'm tempted to to take my own justice can Christians do that yeah even even the first reaction of the Christian can be you know that very heart a heart that is unmerciful and we're sin prone we're prone to it And I'm not referring to some, you know, battle that we might have with some long-standing bitterness that is a personal animosity towards someone and God is slowly rooting that out of the true Christian by the Spirit of God over time. 
We're not talking about that either. You can, you can have those battles still to face. And this heart of love for enemies, and this will be important for you to know, it doesn't erase the enemy's culpability before God. He will repay. It doesn't erase their culpability before a civil society. Look, if God ordains laws, Romans 13, and a sovereign God allows us to bear the sword and punish evildoers and reward those who do good and do that with honor, it is an honor to God. And so we have civil societies that have civil laws that are made to punish evildoers. Your reaching out to them in love doesn't erase their culpability before a civil society. They break the law, they must pay for it. It also doesn't erase their culpability in community relations. Listen, when somebody's not trustworthy, when someone is mean, when someone is nasty, and someone is criminal, we isolate them from relations in society. Why? Because community relationships are a privilege. When somebody violates that, you know, I get, I get so tired of, oh, we need to make sure the prison system has all this wonderful stuff for these people. Listen. I don't know all the ins and outs of how all that works inside the walls of some place where punishment of evildoers is meted out, but I'll tell you this, they need to know that their behavior isolates them from benefits in human relations, from benefiting the community, building, edifying, healthy, normal relationships. Good families, good communities, good societies, good laws, conservative living. That kind of stuff that somebody perpetrates on society, they're guilty of it and my love for them and reaching out to them doesn't erase their culpability for having lost the trust of the people. You can still love people and still tell them that they have to earn trust, absolutely. Nor does this love for enemies erase the culpability of a professing believer in the life of the church who must be disciplined. People have said, oh, church discipline, it's so unloving. No, it's, it's actually not. Church discipline is a process whereby the, the unrepentant heart continues to get exposed to a wider circle of people and stubbornness gets more and more affirmed and settled. And as you call somebody to repent and they don't want to repent, they are disfellowshipped. Why? They cannot endanger the purity and unity of Christ's church by pretending on the outside what they aren't in on the inside and they must feel the isolation. You don't believe me? Read 2 Thessalonians 3. You admonish them as a brother but they should be feeling the shame of having isolated themselves in unrepentant sin from the body. My love for them does not erase their culpability for their behavior and what implications that has on their relationship to the church, to God's people. See, all that's corporate. Corporate community, corporate church, corporate civil laws and society. All of that is corporate. And it's driven by God, who's the ultimate judge. No one gets away with anything. God will judge everything down to the last sinful intention, the last sinful thought, the last sinful deed, the last sinful word. Civil laws are ordained by God for the punishment of evildoers and societies do well to make them and uphold them. Communities themselves will hold people accountable collectively when they do things to destroy strong families and destroy a peaceful life. 
And the church is given the authority delegated from God to declare someone an unbeliever if they remain defiant against the truth. But personal retaliation, personal vengeance is not the mark of a true follower of Christ. Mercy is the mark of a true disciple who has ears to hear. One of the Puritans, Cotton Mather, this is an amazing statement he makes. Absolutely amazing. This would be something to aspire to. I don't know how he could get away with saying this with a clear conscience. Near the end of his life, he said, he did not know of any person in the world who had done ill to him, but that he had done good for him in return. Wow. That's a clear conscience. Love reaches out in mercy. You know what we're going to find out next time? On a practical level, love returns more for less. That one's going to challenge you. Love not only reaches out in mercy, love returns more for less. Jesus will go on to say that love represents God's gracious nature and love refrains from self-righteousness. From self-righteousness. Now let's bow together. Lord, thank you for teaching us from your sermon on that day that although our heart wants to twist and pervert your law, your standard, your justice, and make it an occasion for our own personal vengeance. You can help us. You can give us ears to hear. You can open our eyes and ears, grant us faith to see it. You can help us be strengthened to understand it. And Lord, where we have, where we have nurtured personal vengeance, bitterness, and justified it somehow because of the deep hurt that we were caused. I pray that we would see our need for repentance. Repentance. To grieve that we could ever do such a thing when we have been shown so much mercy. May we never profess your name if we're not willing to fight this issue and see growth in this area and learn to forgive and pardon. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You've said it. We never boldly proclaim with our mouth that we are your disciples and yet be so unwilling to face this issue. Thank you for your word and its power power us to change and may we help each other and where there are relationships that need to be recovered and restored may we just go to that person and seek their forgiveness and say you know I've been bitter it's been wrong I'm so sorry please forgive me Lord cleanse us from an attitude of vengeance and may we be those who reach out in mercy because of your love we pray it in Christ's name Amen